Well, hello, everyone. I think we've got most people back from that wonderful musical break. My name is Sandy Treadway. I'm with the Library of Virginia, and I need to tell you, as a historian of women and of Virginia, it's just a great thrill for me to be here today and be part of this marvelous conference. Um, and it's a thrill to welcome you to our second session for the conference titled Dreams and Nightmares, Patsy Cline and Her Community. And we've got two fabulous presentations today by three wonderful historians and experts uh, on the subject. And I know that this audience will be as participatory during the question and answer period um, as you were after the, our first session today. What I'd like to do um, to avoid too much up and down, I'll introduce all three of our panelists at the same time, and then uh, we'll go into the presentations. Um, doing the a joint presentation together are two folks that come from Winchester, Michael Foreman and Warren Hofstra. Michael Foreman is adjunct instructor of political science at Shenandoah University. He retired after 28 years as clerk of the Winchester Circuit Court and was a teacher and high school administrator for 10 years as well. He's the author of three books on local history, with the most recent being Some Worthy Women that was released just last month. In January, he was named the Outstanding Citizen um, by the Virginia Chamber of Commerce, and the Winchester Frederick County Historical Society named him Historian of the Year um, in March, so very distinguished um, participant. Uh, Warren Hoster, who I know all of you are aware, was the, uh, the uh, genius behind this conference, um, is the Stuart Bell Professor of History at Shenandoah University. In addition to teaching in the fields of American social and cultural history and directing the Community History Project um, at Shenandoah, he has written many, many books on various aspects of American regional history and edited um, several others. Among them are The Planting of New Virginia, Settlement and Landscape in the Shenandoah Valley, A Separate Place, The Formation of Clark County, Virginia, George Washington in the Virginia Backcountry, After the Backcountry, Rural Life in the Great Valley of Virginia, Virginia Reconsidered, New Histories of the Old Dominion, and Cultures in Conflict, the Seven Years' War in North America. His current research focuses on the uses of landscape as a tool for historical study, and specifically on the global economy of grain and flour production from the late 18th century to the 1950s, so quite an ambitious topic, um, as it influenced landscape change in the Shenandoah Valley and created a distinctive material culture and way of life there. Uh, our third presenter today is Beth Bailey, um, who is professor of history at Temple University. She is a social and cultural historian of the 20th century U.S. who specializes in the history of gender and sexuality. Her books include From Front Porch to Back Seat, Courtship in the 20th Century. Um, and uh, <laughs> the first strategic place, Race and Sex in World War II Hawaii which she co-authored with David Farber, and Sex in the Heartland. She is also the co-author of, of an American history survey text called A People and a Nation. She's currently working on a social cultural history of recruiting the all-volunteer army, which has been supported by fellowships from the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Studies and the National Endowment for the Humanities. 
So three great presenters, and I ask you to join me in welcoming them. And uh, please, we'll have questions and answers afterwards, so please take uh, notes, and we'll be, uh, we'll be looking forward to a terrific session. I'd just like to take a moment here at the outset to say thanks to the Virginia Historical Society as co-chair of this project. It has just been a wonderful organization to work with uh, from everyone who has been involved in this project. In fact, if I started naming names, uh, we wouldn't have time for my paper, our paper. And, but I would like to, to, to say thanks to my co-chair to this project, Paul Levengood, uh, who's been great to work with and has taken on so many of the projects of uh, on-site uh, organizing. And I'd like to thank Charlie Bryan as, as well. Charlie will be hoping to be here later. Uh, but I'll tell you, uh, when I came down to Richmond some time ago uh, to present the idea for this event uh, to Charlie and to others, uh, I showed Charlie a copy of the program as we'd worked it out. And he looked at it and he looked at me and said, we've got to do this. And here we are, so we're doing it. The Cultural Worlds uh, of Patsy Cline's Winchester. The people you will see in the first two clips, Doug Butler was a contemporary of Patsy Cline. He was from the area. He had been in World War II. And he came back and was one of those who took benefit of the GI Bill, went off to college, and was a rising young businessman. And he went to hear Patsy sing in some of the clubs in the area. The next is Glenn Shiflett, who was a drummer and organized the first band for her as she began her musical career in the Winchester area, and he lived with Patsy and Charlie Dick for a year after they were married. Patsy Klein, I knew Patsy real well. We had a, a group of uh, young folks that go over to Roland Payne's restaurant uh, every Saturday night to hear Patsy Klein. I can't think of one place that nobody, what you would say, didn't like her. I mean, there were, there were every place, there used to be a place right up the street here, uh, Patton's, Don Patton's Dance Hall. We played there and she came in there and sang a lot. And people from all over came in there. I don't know, I don't know who the people was that didn't like her. So what is it that interests us uh, about Patsy Cline uh, today? Certainly her popularity, her popularity is immense. It's the power of her, of her voice as well that fascinates us, and her art and her artistry is indeed timeless. June Gaskin Davis was a contemporary of Patsy. Her father was the principal of the Black High School in Winchester, Virginia. Dad used to sit in the kitchen there with the door open looking down uh, South Loudoun Street. I came in once and he had his foot there, and he was tapping and all, and the radio, radio in the back of him, and Patsy Klein was on. And I said, well, will you listen to that? And he said, you take a listen, that's Patsy. But see, he loved all kinds of music, Gracie Allen, uh, you name it, and he loved music. But he also loved Patsy. Part of the explanation of why we are fascinated with Patsy Cline has to be the mystique of her early death and the irony and pathos of her subsequent success as a country music artist. She was posthumously inducted into the country music Hall of Fame. And you had to know she was probably as good as it'll ever come along. Um, can you think what she'd be doing if she was just a youngster today? I mean, she'd be, you know, she'd be 
probably still number one. If she hadn't got killed or when she did, well, today she'd probably be uh, number one, be the number one country music female singer. Skeeter Nee also was a contemporary of Patsy, and he talked about hearing her at many of the local taverns or juke uh, places that you talked about earlier. Patsy Cline's unique character intrigues us and challenges us. Uh, here you see her trademark appearance with deep red lipstick and cowgirl outfits. By the 1970s, cow cowboy was camp uh, and the subject of national attention. Patsy Cline also fascinates us because of her sometimes outrageous behavior, or at least outrageous behavior that some people claim. She was brash, she could use crude language, she could be abrasive, confrontational. Her uh, favorite word, Haas, uh, could be a term of endearment or belittlement. Uh, and according to some people, uh, she was a loose, promiscuous woman, a trollop, a woman of indifferent virtue. Uh, and this then became her reputation, at least among her social critics. And I will tell you, as I began working on this project just a year or two ago, a very prominent lady of the community looked at me and said, Warren, what do you want to have anything to do with her for? Well, certainly Patsy Cline's legacy is contested. At least it is uh, so still in uh, her hometown of Winchester. People outside the community may not be so aware of just how contested her legacy is. But her contested legacy is indeed a cultural script that we have adopted in the community uh, in order to talk about her. In some sense, and in cultural terms, uh, she was subversive and heretical. Alan Barley was a county native, also a contemporary of Patsy, and he was Skeeter Nee. We'll talk about this contested reputation. That feeling is kind of like anything else with uh, you go out of town to find an expert. Uh, you know, you don't recognize your own local people sometimes. And I think that's basically what happened with Patsy. Winchester as a whole, um, just this uh, never stepped up to bat uh, on something like Patsy. Um, if you have any, any desire to like music of any kind, you had to know she was probably as good as it'll ever come along. Um, can you think what she'd be doing if she was just a youngster today? I mean, she'd be, you know, she'd be probably still number one. And um, there's a lot of people, <laughs> there's a lot of people that don't like success when it's somebody else's success. And I think that might be part of uh, the feeling around. I think that, uh, you know, there's a, um, and, and, I, and I really and truly believe that. I, I think that there's people that because she became so successful that uh, a lot of people just, you know, don't want to hear it. Warren, what is it? Is there anything in the history of the community that uh, tells us a little bit about this fascination with Patsy? Well, Mike, thank you for asking. <laughs> Well, let's look for a minute at the history of the of, of 1950s uh, Winchester, its social and cultural history, for what it tells us about our fascination with Patsy Cline and her legacy. Uh, Winchester is well known, at least in some circles, as the home and headquarters of George Washington during the French and Indian War. It's also the community that allegedly changed hands more than 70 times uh, during the 
<coughs> Civil War. Uh, but what was it like in the 1950s? Uh, we have to look at Patsy Cline's time and her career uh, to understand, uh, and to her community to understand her career. Uh, this map was drafted, hand-drawn in 1926. Patsy Cline was born in Winchester Memorial Hospital six years later. To understand Winchester the 1950s, however, we have to go back another century uh, into the pre-industrial area, era of the community, when Winchester was a county seat uh, for the surrounding Frederick County, and it was a market center uh, for the surrounding rural community. Grain and livestock were the primary commodities of rural farms. Farmers came into town uh, to acquire seeds and feed. Uh, they came into town to market their commodities. <clears throat> there was an active livestock exchange uh, in Winchester from the 18th century on uh, to uh, the present day. At the market house uh, in Winchester, farm families and town households in town uh, could market and purchase a wide variety of foodstuffs, breads, meat, everything they need to meet their daily needs. Uh, Main Street, Loudoun Street was certainly the center uh, of commerce and the center of the community. Uh, here, commission merchants marketed the commodities of the surrounding farms. And at shops of the retail merchants, uh, people of Winchester could purchase goods produced all around the world. Key to the Loudoun Street, the main street community that Winchester was, the market center in the 18th century, uh, was residential integration. Uh, merchants often lived above their shops, apprentices and clerks uh, in attics and lofts uh, above them. Uh, slaves and free blacks, African Americans uh, lived in uh, back rooms sometimes or, or above uh, liveries in the back, in the back, yacht, back lot. Uh, women all, often took a very active role in running the shops. So Main Street itself was the place where people of all classes and races and genders interacted. But change of the town began also in the country and in the countryside. While wheat and flour remained as a staple of the region until the 1950s, by half a century earlier, farmers began to plant commercial orchards and produce large apple and peach crops. And by the early 20th century, more apples were produced in the region than anywhere else in Virginia. In the town, Winchester, it became the regional center for the apple processing and packing industry. Seasonal work of grading and preparing apple products provides supplemental income for white people sometimes from the town, but often as far as way the mountains of West Virginia. With the development and spread of mechanical refrigeration, the apple cold storage became a big business during the first decade of the 20th century. One plant in Winchester claimed to be the largest in the United States. Soon woolen mills began rising in Winchester. The town became home of a new industry, textiles. Uh, this business flourished from World War I uh, through the 1950s. Light industries moved to Winchester in the 1930s and the 1940s. Industries such as O'Sullivan Rubber Corporation and American Brake Shoe took advantage of Virginia's right-to-work legislation and low wages that workers received. Winchester was the most northern town in the United States in a right-to-work state. What was new in the social history of the town and of profound consequence for the development uh, of <coughs> the uh, music industry and, and music in the town was a working class of industrial laborers. 
No comparable class of people had existed in Winchester during the previous century when marketing agricultural goods and services constituted the economic lifeblood of the community. The workers were new, and the rise of a working class changed the social history of the town. The women worked in the large apple processing plants. Evidently, they earned good wages based on the dress of these women in this slide. Women also found work in the Winchester textile mills, where the workforce was exclusively white. Dress was a signifier of status. Over, overalls, caps, heavy boots defined working men in Winchester. Here you see them set against the hand tools of their trade, including a hand railroad cart. How then do we define the working class in the context of 1950s Winchester? In 1950s Winchester, income or wealth did not alone divide people into the conventional distinctions of lower, middle, and upper classes. Working class was not merely a matter of money. Working people were not poor people. Incomes were modest, but families led decent lives, sent their children to school, went to church, stayed out of trouble, and sought a variety of entertainments in their free time. But what shaped their lives, uh, more than anything else, what was <coughs> local author, Joe Bajan, author of uh, a best-selling uh, new book called Deer Hunting with Jesus, describes as the absence of power and self-control over the nature of work. Working people, in many ways, were dependent people and owed their way of life to the decisions made by other people. Suits, ties, fedora hats, dresses, hats, and gloves for women define the proprietary class identity as contrasted to the workers. And here, of course, you see them arrayed in front of their most powerful engine, a new acquisition by the Winchester and Potomac Railroad, or Winchester and Western Railroad. Which ran from Gore, Virginia, to Winchester. An interesting Patsy kind connection, of course, because uh, she lived as, as a girl in, in Gore. Managers uh, and owners of plants often mingled with their workers, but dress identified them as different. Uh, they did stand apart. As we see it, Winchester had a two-class society in the 1950s, a working class and what we are calling a proprietary class. In the workplace, and even more rigidly in their domestic and social life, they lived separately. The proprietary class earned and enjoyed more money. But to say that they were middle class as an expression of their income, however, does not accurately reflect their status. They were the people who owned property, who owned and managed stores, who owned and managed the businesses and the industries. Property more than money defined who they were. The property class monopolized political power. They lived better off the labor of the working class. In any society, in any society, the disparity of condition, this kind of disparity of condition, can produce tensions, conflict, violence, and sometimes revolution. But powerful cultural mechanisms must be at work to distinguish, distinguish classes, to keep them separate at the same time they inter intermingle and to justify themselves one to the other. Identity, in other words, depended on class. Distinctions of race and gender worked with class in shaping identity. They sustained a division between the working and the proprietary classes. So a myriad of social practices, habits, customs, behaviors, rituals, and ceremonies worked to stabilize, justify, and maintain racial, gender, and class divisions.
but at the same time, people in separate worlds interacted with one another in ways that were scripted by their culture. Working class and proprietary class people composed a social geography of Winchester. Kent Street formed the center of working class life. West, across Main Street, only a few blocks away, the people of the proprietary class lived on Washington Street. Of course, they were spread out more broadly throughout the town, but we can talk of Kent Street people and Washington Street people. North Kent Street was largely African-American. South Kent Street was largely white. Architectural references to classical revival styles and the ambience of the southern plantation expressed the social values of the proprietary class that lived on Washington Street. Spacious Washington Street houses enjoyed large yards, expansive setbacks, and an impressive street facade. The message on Washington Street was wealth and social prominence. We've identified the house here of, of Hunter Gaunt, and it was Gaunt's uh, drugstore where Patsy Cline got her, one of her first uh, jobs in Winchester after leaving high school. Kent Street was just four blocks to the east of Washington Street. It composed the heart of the working class neighborhoods. Working people in Winchester literally lived on the wrong side of Main Street, although you can see the railroad tracks in the very eastern part of this drawing. Kent Street houses were small. They were often adjoining. They were close to the street without front yards. Many houses, many households in the 1950s still used backyard privies. Porches, however, allowed residents to participate in a very active street life. And here you can see we've identified uh, Patsy Klein's house. North Kent Street was the home to many of Winchester's African Americans. Houses were smaller. Some were shotgun houses, the traditional house form of the African American in the South. Many had porches because street life was vital to the American, African American community. Residential segregation in Winchester was complicated. Small groups of African-American families lived in clusters throughout Winchester, only a half a block from Washington Street, as shown in this uh, slide. The Elks Club on North Street was a center of African-American social life. Many black musicians performed here, including Duke Ellington. Downtown was public space used by people of all classes and all races. We've identified here uh, the Capitol Theater and the Palace Theater, which play an important part uh, in the social history of Winchester at this time. The two movie theaters provided downtown entertainment for everyone, but there were differences. The Capitol Theater was more commonly frequented by men and women of the proprietary class. It was a Warner Brothers theater. It showed A movies. Uh, men, often on a Saturday evening, wore coats and ties, Dresses, handbags, and high-heeled shoes were de rigueur for women. There was a mural, uh, which you can see uh, above the stage, that <coughs> was a, a depiction, a fresco, of the people appealing for protection to George Washington. The social message was quite clear. B-movies were left to the Palace Theater. To attract a working-class audience, the owner aggressively marketed a variety of live entertainments, including talent competi competitions, variety shows, and minstrel shows. 
Loudoner Main Street was public space. All classes, all races, men and women used Main Street and encountered each other on its sidewalks. Great crowds often gathered on Saturday. Stores stayed open late until 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the evening. Country people would come to town in large numbers. They would often park their cars on Main Street and late in the afternoon after they had finished their shopping, uh, they would sit in their cars uh, and wait for friends and, and acquaintances to walk by and engage them in conversation. Women from Washington Street did most of their shopping on Main Street during the week, often combining a walk to market with lunch or tea at the George Washington Hotel with friends. Main Street then on Saturday was for the most part the domain of Winchester's working classes and the country people from the county. All the stores and shops were closed on Sundays. The George Washington Hotel uh, was a downtown fixture. It was a center of high social activities. Formal dances and dinners were held there. Social clubs and service organizations met in its public rooms. The Howard Johnson restaurant in the basement, however, served as a meeting place for a much wider variety of white people. The hotel also employed African Americans as bellhops, waiters, and custodians. The Hannah High School opened in 1923. An endowed public school and the architecture and landscape grounds made it the pride of the white community, both of the proprietary and the working classes. And while both groups were educated here, there's a contradiction or a conflicted story. The building suggested wealth. The early curriculum reflected progressive education policies, preparation for higher education, as well as the world of work. Academic and vocational subjects were to be given equal weight. This served to reinforce a division or separation between the proprietary and the working classes. Exams in all subjects counted 50% of the semester grade. Four diplomas were offered, two in the academic field and then vocational and commercial and business. Students had to choose the track during the eighth grade that they hoped to enter, and those that said they wanted to go into the academic program had to take a Latin tryout. And if they were deemed qualified, they could go into the academic track, and they must complete two years of Latin. The valedictorian and salutatorian were chosen not from the total class standings, but from only those in the academic track. Students who came from the east side of town and who had attended the Virginia Avenue School had a higher percentage in the the non-academic track, and they sensed that some of their teachers evaluated their work on the basis of who they were, where they lived, or what their parents did for a living. No one worried over the dropout rate. Until 1956, Virginia had a compulsory attendance law that mandated all children had to be enrolled in a public or private school until the age of 15. But the 1954 Supreme Court case on school desegregation, Virginia abandoned the compulsory attendance law, and I recall vividly being seated in the auditorium and the superintendent standing before the student body and saying, if you are here because you think the law requires you to be here, I have some good news for you. That law has been repealed, and there is the door. And I recall students getting up and leaving the auditorium, and one I am fairly confident was Patsy Klein's brother, who was in my class. How the working class and other people Later on, after the school was integrated, perceived the school, I was making a home visit when I was assistant principal to a home on Kent Street 
where a student evidently was having a problem. The conversation had gone on the entire evening with his mother. I was not aware the father was there, and all of a sudden this booming voice said, you damn teachers are like officers in the military. You know everything. A black student who was there later when I was assistant principal said to me, this isn't a high school, it's a college. Only smart people can succeed here. This is a gentleman who knows of which he speaks because he graduated from Hanley High School, uh, returned, to high sc- uh, returned to Hanley as a teacher, uh, and then as an assistant principal before he went on uh, to the city court. But Mike, wouldn't you say that there was a great deal of class-making behavior going on at Hanley High School? Most certainly. <laughs> Frederick Douglass School uh, was for African Americans. Uh, it was built with the same Hanley Trust Funds as constructed Hanley High School. It was much more modern in parents, uh, but it also had a classical revival facade. It did represent significant opportunities in a segregated society for the, Afri- uh, for the education of African-American children. But black students at Douglas uh, <coughs> used cast-off textbooks uh, and discarded sports equipment. Teachers received lower pay. Nonetheless, black students seeking a high school diploma came here from Frederick Warren and Shenandoah counties. I think there was as many people that admired her as that, that there was that disliked. The only trouble is the ones that disliked her probably held a little more authority and a little more power. So therefore, we tend to hear it from them more than we do um, the other people. We haven't questioned the other part of the population. She's more a phenomenon away from here than she is in Winchester. I, I don't think people here at the time ever really thought that much of her or her music or her fame. Probably just because where she lived. That's the only thing I, on Kent Street. Because it was a, what, the slum area of Winchester, or I don't know what you want to call it, the, the not the most popular place you want to live. That was the, the uh, other side of the track, so to speak. Uh, uh, it was downtown. Most of the people who didn't like her were uptown. <laughs> Wayne Anderson, the one in the middle between uh, Skeeter and Glenn was Wayne Anderson, a classmate of mine in the class of 59 from the east side of town who would often talk about feeling different at being at the Hanley High School. Living right there where I am now in my granddaddy's house on South Loudoun, and I would see Patsy Cline walk by. Uh, I think her aunt or someone lived in the next block going uh, south, and she would be walking up to Gaunt's store. And... uh, you know, we would go up, and uh, that was a time when you weren't supposed to be sitting down. But uh, we'd go in there, and Patsy would feed us ice cream or whatever we wanted, you know. It was, it was a very, <clears throat> what is the word? Uh, it was a community where you, know, you knew there were limitations, but you didn't really, in some ways, let it get in your way. And it also depended on... Your goals, your ambitions, where you were going and what you wanted to do. I think it's an interesting comment. This was during segregation and blacks were not to be seated, but Patsy, in defiance of the rules and the norm of the time, would serve them in Gaunt's drugstore, her determination, and rebelling against maybe the rules of society. The black and white children in Winchester came to the same theater, but blacks were required to be seated in the balcony. Other entertainments were strictly segregated. Finley's Recreation Center provided a setting for dances for both teens and adults, 
as well as a variety of public functions, but strictly for blacks. The National Guard Armory served both blacks and whites, mostly for dances. The blacks could use the armory only on certain nights of the week. A teen dance for black youth occurred at the War Memorial Building, but on Monday nights, and a bus would often take the black children from North Kent Street back and forth. The geography of wealth and social class defined power relationships in Winchester. Wealth divided the community east and west on the dotted line running along Loudoun Street. Ward representation divided north and south, uh, allowing the proprietary classes to dominate city government. Proprietary and working class people shared the same racial identity, but class boundaries could be as subtle and powerful as the segregation of the races. The Chanticleer Inn was a whites-only restaurant. All the waiters and other help were black. A family dinner at the Chanticleer Inn reinforced not only family bonds, but a white racial identity. Black people were clearly associated with a servile position. Entertainment performed much the same work of distinguishing class and race. The big band sound was the music of choice for dances at the George Washington. The organ appealed to up-and-coming doctors, lawyers, businessmen, and their families. A good dinner in Winchester could be had only at the Chanticleer Inn, the George Washington Hotel, and the Country Club. Patsy Cline sang here in the late 1940s under the leadership of Jack Fretwell in his band. He made sure that she was dressed in a black cocktail dress. The annual Apple Blossom Festival began in 1924 to celebrate the apple industry in the region and its contribution to the economy. The proprietary class people dominated the organization of the festival. The Queen's Ball was by invitation only from the Queen and her court. A pageant clearly demonstrated the power of gender in Winchester society. The Queen and her court of princesses represent a classic example of gender role reversal in civic ceremony in which an otherwise subordinate group is temporarily empowered or given dominion over society as a means of eliciting support for an otherwise exploitive set of social relations. Gender segregation was also evident in the activities of the Apple Blossom Festival among the proprietary class. The ladies' luncheon at Apple Blossom began in the 1940s in response to the men's male-only stag luncheon. In the introduction, uh, gender separation was evident. The proprietary women wore hats and dresses at public events. Also, you could see the men seated in an apple processing packing plant, sitting on apple crates, wearing a coat and tie, eating chicken and drinking bourbon. Which is another odd example of role reversal. <laughs> Working class outings were different. Uh, these were Patsy Cline's people. Now, we know that this is somewhat of a stage photograph here, but these people were having good fun in their own way. Country music had a little something to do with when its start was that, okay, here's the class of people we are, and we're going to sing about it. We're going to sing about, you know, the taverns and drinking and, and everything. And I think that attracted the people that felt that they were in that, in that group. Dancing was in a lot of the clubs around Winchester at that time, and uh, from Mountainside Inn at Gore to Lucky Inn, Silver Diner, Melody Lane down in West Virginia. When you speak of roadhouses, uh, there were different different kinds of roadhouses. I mean, there were there were some that we went to that we were very comfortable with, but others were you just didn't go to. 
This is a photo of Glenn Shifflett, the drummer that also lived with Patsy and Charlie, and this was at the Mountainside Inn. And if the holes that you're, the white spots you see in the mirror behind Glenn are bullet holes. Did you tell me, Mike, that Patsy Cline had her wedding reception at the Mountainside Inn? Her second Inn? wedding reception second was at the Mountainside Inn. The bullet holes had been removed at that time. She wasn't bothered about who you were or what you were. That was her makeup. We took it with a grain of salt, you know. We, we just thought, well, she's picked up some bad words here. Let her use them, get through with them. But we, we would, you know, if, if she said something that was kind of out of order, well, we would correct her and say, you know, Patsy, uh, we don't talk like that in this group. She stepped on your toes? That was just too bad. <laughs> so much at odds was Klein at times with her community that she was rejected for the 1956 Apple Blossom Parade. True to form, however, she and her band crashed the main feature parade uh, in order to make an appearance. In 1986, when an effort was made to name a new road for her, one resident proclaimed, ask anyone in this town and they'll tell you, Patsy Cline was nothing but a whore. I think it bothered her some that Winchester never really probably gave her her, her, her uh, right dues. I, you know, I, I told people I can take you, we go through Batesville, Arkansas, and you see the home of Mark Martin. You can go on over into Texas, and you'll see where a quarterback was born. You know, people want to do it. And we just never did. We just never did. I think, and I think it's sad for Winchester because if you go to put dollars and figures on it, you can't open the door in, in Nashville, Tennessee that, Patsy Klein in behind the door down in Nashville yet. So in conclusion, what does the social and cultural history of Winchester tell us about Patsy Klein and her contested legacy? How does this history help explain why she and her career are so interesting to us? What are these conclusions? So different was Winchester in the 1950s that it appears to many of us today as a foreign country. Deep social divisions ran along lines of class, rent, gender, and race. People lived separate lives in separate worlds. The separation occurred class, race, and gender. This defined the spatial geography of Winchester. Separation occurred as well in social space. In complex but culturally deep ways, people acted toward one another to maintain the separate ways of class, race, and gender. At the same time, people of all classes, races, and genders interacted constantly in the social spaces of the town. Thus, working-class life was distinct and highly autonomous. But to Patsy Cline, working-class people were always her people. It is to them that she remained devoted. That is why she wore the cowboy outfits. That is why she sang country music and aspired to sing regularly on the Grand Old Opry. The class of divisions of Winchester shaped her behavior. At the same time, she yearned for the approval of the town. Her dress, her language, and her devotion <clears throat> to country music contradictorily provoked her own condemnation. But whatever happened, Patsy Cline, when asked, would always say her home was Winchester. I know that there wasn't people pulling on her and tugging and asking for her autographs and all like that. I mean, they took to her just like one of the people that that were there. She looks like anybody else that was there. She was, uh, she was just one of the people that, that were there for the, 
for the dance or fight or whatever broke out. Thank you very much.